Welcome to the Five Phenomenon Podcast, perpetually back from hiatus. I am your host, Shane Hazen. Coming up on this episode, I'm joined by Lonnie Gonzalez as we discuss from 2003, Peyton Reed's Down With Love and the Rock Hudson Doris Day movies that Down With Love parodies. Um, to let you know how far behind I am on this, uh, if you get to the end of the episode, you'll hear we recorded this a few days after Valentine's Day. Uh, I was about hours away from seeing Peyton Reed's latest movie, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania, or that's not the title. It's buried on Disney Plus right now amongst the whole Disney movies that supposedly bombed this year. Um, That's how far behind we are. Uh, But in the meantime, what a crazy few last few weeks in particular we've missed out on. Um, We're a week out from Barbenheimer which even though supposedly box office is still down 25% from, I think, 2018, uh, Barbenheimer is just the beacon of hope for any moviegoer who loves watching movies in the theater. It was just a great weekend. Um, There's so many great things to take from this weekend. You have Christopher Nolan making when theory should just be Oscar bait and it's making a ton of money just because it has, especially in those first two hours, some of the best filmmaking he's ever made. And then really Barbie, like proof that like, if you make movies for women and not just pandery women, uh, movies for women, like dudes trying to like guess what women want, but you actually let women make movies for women and speak to women and market them well towards women. Uh, you, the vibrancy of the theaters are still very strong. Um, this also comes, I don't know how many weeks we were, I think, what, three weeks into the SAG strike. God knows how long we're in the WGA strike. And by all accounts, no one knows when this is going to end. Uh, no, The AMPTP, I always get those initials wrong, are still planning on not coming back to the table. Um, there's all these weird reports about why they're doing, how they're doing while seeming like bond villains like uh taking on the side of commerce versus arts in history which obviously is a studio uh corporation an llc whatever makes sense that they're gonna do but still it's just how fucking short-sighted how much are you shorting against humanity right now with the studios where the the big headline everyone seems to be talking about is ai being starting to write and make movies, which I cannot think of any more Soma-like mediocrity that the streamers really want to push. They really want you to just only find entertainment while the plebes work to make their riches while it's just, it seems so ridiculous. Um, there's also all these, uh, I, I don't entirely understand. Warner Brothers came out today and said uh, that... They've made a hundred million dollars, over a hundred million dollars, or at least they have a hundred million dollars in liquidity right now because they aren't making movies. And why are you bragging that the thing you do when you stop doing it for a month, you make money? And like, that's the other thing. Warner Brothers, especially under the David Zaslav reign, I've seen a bunch of people point out that he's become, and that studio has become the punching bag of uh what the studios are doing wrong which to be clear making movies and having people enjoy movies is a fucking golden egg and to screw it up 
you just have overthought groupthink to a certain point. I just don't get how you screw this up this badly so epically. And granted, there's all the issues with the streamers. Streamers have, as many people point out, Apple and Netflix in particular have no financial or vested interest in making sure theatrical lasts, even though now the streamers' economic model, people are really just tired of it, I guess, or at least investors are, Wall Street are. And so, like, uh, they're just it's been proven time and time again that theatrical is still a way of making money. I heard it explained on one particular podcast. I can't remember who said this. He talked about how for a hundred years, theatrical model was say a big studio released 22 movies. You would have uh, 18 movies that made their money back. Two movies bombed badly and were embarrassments. Two movies were massive hits. And the economic model was that the hits needed to make more money than the bombs. And then suddenly IP started taking over probably like, I don't know when Bob Iger took over Disney, but Bob Iger was a strategist who came up with a, let's just release eight movies a year that we think are going to be all surefire hits. And then suddenly box office was really well because it was all IP based. And uh, that strategy for Disney, particularly this summer, like, have you heard the term flop buster? Like that's what's taken over. Um, I should also mention, I don't know how long I've been talking right now at this point, but why am I talking about money in box office? Like, all I give a shit about for box office is that uh, artists I like get to keep making stories and bigger stories and the stories they want to tell. And I'm interested in, it's all they're talking about right now just because it's the survival of the movie business stuff. And I don't know, by the way, off topic, if any of you who are on Instagram, I recommend my favorite new follow is Francis Ford Coppola on Instagram because it's very apparent he's actually doing the Instagram himself. And he's of the mind, he posted the other day, he says, we're on the verge of a new age of golden cinema. And if you followed his posts, I think he's posted that great, inspiring, unfulfilled quote at the end of heart of darkness where he says you know a fat girl in ohio is going to be the savior the new mozart of cinema that didn't happen uh the other day he posted this amazing amazing story where he showed a clip of him uh uh, presenting michael cimino with best director the 1978 oscars and uh he went on this rant about how we were on the verge of a new golden age of cinema and on, in the notes he pointed out it's like we were on that it, that we were on the verge of it the problem was it didn't go into the artists infamously the new american wave of the 70s turned to the corporate wave of the 80s which ended up being some of the worst movies of american cinema and if it got to the artists maybe they could have taken over that i, I don't know i'm not i don't want to speak in utopia artists speak whatever but there's just a lot like a lot of correlations in my mind right now between Tarantino came out and said that like we are now in the worst or one of the three worst decades of American cinema right now between the 50s and the 80s. And I see it. I just I am uninspired by the movies that are being made right now. And Coppola made the point we're on the verge of a new golden age. And I hope so. I really do hope so. Uh, So we're talking down with love from Peyton Reed, which uh I hate to, I can't, I can't get any better language than to say I'm just like undiscovered gem. I think film Twitter's kind of fallen in love with this movie. Just a very witty movie that um, is a meta movie about 
uh, a genre of romantic comedy that was probably more clever than you think from the 60s, late 50s and 60s, the Rock Hudson Doris Day movies. Lonnie is the bigger expert on those, and we discuss it. But Down With Love, you'll hear me speak about there's so much great stuff. There's so much great filmmaking. There's so much fun and cleverness in, in the movie, but there's one specific sequence that is just an all-timer in it, the main reason I wanted to do this episode. So I hope you enjoy listening to this episode and find out which sequence I'm talking about. Should we do some fun split screen effects? Like <laughs> some some beautiful entendres. Uh, those are uh, I had forget that was one of the things in, in um, the movie I definitely forgot completely forgot. Oh really? <laughs> yeah. There's um, we'll get to this. There's one specific thing. The reason Down with Love works for me and is so memorable is the one there's one scene at the end i think near the end it's probably i hope you you and i know we're talking about we'll realize the same spot and i not not twice if you agree because i don't want to spoil it until we get later into the podcast but i don't know i don't know i don't know what scene i mean i think i know maybe what scene you mean but finish your thought have we talked how did we come across this episode like you were you're a doris day rock hudson fan uh yeah i do i like i like those uh, movies that they made together i like doris day um in general and rock hudson but uh they made three um comedies together in the late 50s early 60s and i think all three of them are, are fun did we did i mention my particular love for down with love no, I, you know, I think maybe you did like a Facebook post or, or you said something maybe about okay. Peyton Reed. And then I jumped in and said, like, I demand to be on the Down With Love episode. And and so... I actually had had a Down With Love episode planned, too. So um, yeah, <laughs> my memory around this movie is I was working at Showplace North and the hardest thing that I'm going to miss about working at a theater was also one of the most tedious, but it was weirdly rewarding because when you were a projectionist, you had to tech the movie. So you watched pretty much almost everything that came through. And mm-hmm. I guess with the last day's free streaming, when like the studios were putting out a lot of content, there was just, yeah, you had to watch a lot of bad stuff and you got used to it. You got acclimated to it, but you'd always be surprised, especially it didn't even need to be projectionist. You just had to work at the theater and have to walk in on it. There was always the magic of a, a tedious movie with one good scene, or in this case, a movie that no one is talking about. And and it, it, it can be frustrating because then you'd start telling people about it and they'd be like, why that one? But this is one of those ones like always stuck. With, I don't know if I've actually seen it since we we, we had it in the theater at Showplace North. But, mm, but okay. when I watched it again the other day, still charming is all get out and clever is all get out (laughs) yeah i hadn't watched it in a few years but it's definitely when i've watched um a few times now because i just think it's yeah super charming and even if you're not into the if you're not familiar with the older movies that it's sort of which i wasn't i I was not at all still i mean i think it's still just enjoyable as a comedy a romantic comedy 
there's it's still funny it's still fun to watch and lots to look at you guys have contextual gist of what i mean i've always heard about exactly what rock hudson doris day movies were supposed to do or what the 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 effect of them for this episode i finally i only watched pillow talk but i did watch one yeah well i think pillow talk is the main one that this movie is kind of um riffing off of um pillow talk and lover come back kind of have similar plots does lover come back the one with tony randall in it too along with pillow tony randall is in all their Uh, movies with them as well so it's almost like a trio really (laughs) it's doris day rock hudson and tony randall i I thought i guess i thought he was only in two of the three okay yeah yeah um and and tony randall is in down with love I had completely forgot about that too, and didn't realize that was a specific <laughs> reference until I watched Hello Talk first before rewatching Down with Love. Um, mm. Let's get into what your history is. Doris Day is the main anchor for you. Um, you know, I just like old movies, and so that was, you know, I've seen before. I don't know if I was the first time I saw if it was particularly for Doris Day, but I do. Uh, I do like her. I um, have watched a lot of her movies. She made. She started out as like a big band girl singer, and then she got into movies and kind of played the singer in the band in movies, <laughs> light musicals for a long time. And then in the 50s, she had done a couple of more serious ones like uh, the Hitchcock movie, The Man Who Knew Too Much. That's really the only one I, I, I feel like I know a little. Yeah. She, she did another, she did a couple more like, uh, more serious ones about you know like like thriller type ones where it's like a woman being stalked or like her husband's trying to kill her or something but that just wasn't really I think she just felt like that wasn't really her strong suit was those kind of movies and so she she would go she went back to doing the musicals and these and so then in like the late 50s 1959 it was pillow talk and that kind of set up a new little chunk of her career where she was doing these romantic comedies i feel like even in man who knew too much like she was playing a mother like and it was there was a lot of because mm-hmm. because the, the vibe i always got from her specifically the rock hudson what i always know about them was they were always this de- definition of being s- square sexually they like like the, watching this you really got hit with the feeling like like what it was what romantic comedies were really seemed square to boomers at the time and i mean this is pre-sexual revolution but what how were movies outside of in america talking about sex this time too especially in a romantic Mm -hmm. comedy right well i think you're coming off of a period of with like uh the production code and the studio system and that kind of getting more relaxed in the 50s it was Billy Wilder's really always the, the the closest that was pushing the boundaries. I thought from, but there's there's got to be someone else who was, you know, or some other movies that were. And I think in Europe, the uh, European directors were starting to have, um, you know, sex be more uh, in the because, like, I think, um, like, uh, and God created woman with Brigitte Bardot was in the fifties, and then the French New Wave yeah. starts. Um, you know, around then, which ha- was more, had more like casual sex or the um, at least implication of that. Getting into this, I wasn't sure if there was going to be split beds or not. Oh, well, see, nobody lives together in this movie, so <laughs> they each have their own bed. And then- <laughs> well, the, there's a remote control bed that doesn't split, so there's that. Yeah, there's a remote control bed. 
<laughs> well, I mean, and I think this movie, it's, you know, has the implication that Rock Hudson is um, having lots of, you know, uh, casual sex with, with women. And, Definitely. Oh, absolutely. And um, it's, it's interesting too, because it shows, I think uh, the Doris Day character, it's like, she's like, fine. She's like, I don't care if you are do I don't care if he's having sex or I don't care how many women he talks she to. She says that. She says that plenty of times. <laughs> She's like, I just want to be able to use my phone. Because I don't think we explain what pillow talk is about, but it's like people oh, who do you wanna do you wanna go ahead? Well yeah, I mean it's kind of this weird concept to explain now because it's like this people had landline phones and in the, the 50s, landline part is the part that's the complicated part to explain. No, no, no. And the, they had a landline phone and at that point, some people, not everybody had their own dedicated phone line. And so you would share a phone line with a stranger like she does in this movie. And so anytime she picks up the phone, if he's on the phone, she can hear it and vice versa. And they try and she wants to like um, schedule out times when they can be on the phone because he's always talking to his girlfriends and she just wants to be able to make a phone call. And uh, so then... Later, they happen to meet, and he knows that it's her, but she doesn't know it's him, and so he takes on the persona of this um, southern gentleman who's visiting New York, and uh, they go out on dates, and eventually, you know, she finds out who he is. Because of the skill of being able to read sheet music, <laughs> she's able to recognize a song that she's heard him play over the phone for many of his girlfriends. And, uh, but, you know, in the end, you know, they come together and it's a happy ending for them. Uh, <laughs> and Tony Randall plays his uh, friend who's like, you know, the nerdier guy who is envious of the fact that Rock Hudson is uh, dating all these women and would like to date Doris Day, but, um, you know, relishes the fact that he's found one woman that doesn't want to date him. And, uh, you know, he's a great supporting cast yeah. in that. What, what are the plots of the other ones? Do you know? Um, so the plot of Lover Come Back is that um, it's very, like I said, very similar to Pillow Talk in that they are two people who are at odds. They are both work in advertising and they've and he's kind of poached some of her clients, but they've never met. The Madison Avenue aspect was one thing I wasn't expect. Like, <laughs> like yeah, in, in both these movies. Yeah, and so in that movie, again, they haven't met. Then they do meet, but she mistakes him for someone else, and so he pretends to be a scientist, and then that is a ruse to be able to go out on a lot of dates with her. And then eventually, she <laughs> finds out who he is, and you know, very similar to uh to pillow talk uh, is, is he is he a, a aeronautics uh scientist no he's like a okay. chemist okay yeah because uh in that show in that he makes up a product and then um she's trying to get the account to sell that product and of course she doesn't know that it was totally made up by him and then in send me no flowers they're actually a married couple and um the rock hudson the husband believes that he is uh, dying that he has a terminal illness and so he's he tr is trying to find a new husband for his wife before he dies he wants to find someone um you know to match her with is that tony randall and 
No. Tony Rand- no, Tony Randall doesn't get a girl. Tony Randall never gets a girl in these movies. He's always just a friend, neurotic sort of friend. But in that one, it's more like misunderstandings ensue and, you know. But it's a little, little bit different than the other two because in that one, they're already a couple. Okay, yeah. Oh, right. It's not about the uh, coming together romance. I love you keep saying, part, uh, yeah. like, there's the um, Paul Rudd, uh, the Amy Poehler movie, They Came Together. Oh, they came yeah. together. <laughs> yes, yeah. I was like, well, the, the, yeah. one of the cleverest romantic t- uh, comedy titles of all, like parody title. Almost. Yes, I yeah, I do like that movie too. Oh, by the it's way, a good um, there's yeah no, there's a scene of um, there's a scene that I think about a lot where Paul Rudd is playing basketball with his friends and Ken Marino, the great Ken Marino, is there just kind of like moving the ball back and forth in front of him as if he were playing basketball but they obviously are not playing basketball at all and i just i just laugh about that sometimes yeah i um i guess the i the madman artifice i i was surprised that this like um I mean, there's a scene in Down With Love where Sarah Paulson's introduction, she comes out of the elevator and there's just smoke coming out of it. But it's still a yes. few years before <laughs> Mad Men, so. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting that it that it did come out before the whole, before Mad Men kind of made a little bit more of a, uh, a desire for mid-century stuff. Should we give a plot summary or something about do you want to go ahead i was going to try to finish up a little more pillow talk oh not that way ronnie though but oh oh, hmm, shane um so in uh yeah well i don't know what else to say culturally um, what do you think of it now where where do you think it's those reputation of the because i mean like one of the things that stood out to me was an obvious uh almost i don't know it's a low cheap observation but it's the gag of um whenever uh rock hudson uh is trying he's still two personas and he's trying to mess with doris day's head mm-hmm. and he's like oh he hasn't made a move yet and then they I, what was the phrase he says like he's friendly with his mother and he like he like he likes him oh yeah yeah <laughs> yeah they kind of make a reference like well maybe he doesn't like women because he has I, I wrote down the know. phrases. It was, yeah, it was like friendly with her mother and something like, I want to say like there was something about costume or design or something, some mm. crack there. Yeah, right, right. Um, yeah, I, well, you know, that pillow talk um, was very popular at the time and it won the Academy Award for screenplay. I know she, oh, who got nominated for, was Doris Day got nominated? I think Doris Day got nominated for Best Actress, but um, it, the movie itself, it got a few Oscar nominations, but it did win for its screenplay, which okay. is interesting because um, certainly for as you know, the last few years that I can remember, a, a romantic comedy type movie would not be even nominated, much I less. I would think <laughs> uh, Silver Lining's Playbook would probably be one of the last ones, but you also, back in our, our heyday, yeah. uh, the James L. Brooks nom- ones that got nominated sure sure yeah yeah. and you know and then it spawned a couple more not sequels but more team-ups so i think i think it was popular and i think i think even though today it seems kind of silly and pretty tame about its sort of um the way that's depicting you know 
sex lives and romance, I think at the time it was seen as kind of like um, cheeky, you know, like not, you know, not like not super like racy by any means, not what they're doing over <laughs> in France, but. Um... <laughs> well, I've had, I've had this observation in the last few years when I watch uh, mainly movies from the fifties and sixties, but basically any movie from before I was born where there's uh-huh. this, um kind of ben- uh, benefit of the doubt i give it where there's oftentimes i'll watch a movie and think it's anywhere from one to four years uh um older than it really is mm-hmm. so like i yeah everyone's gonna be like oh wow that was in a movie at this time and then i'll forget like oh this didn't come out in 55 this is 59 okay right this yeah. Is 59 yeah yeah yeah, because I think now we think, oh, 50s are kind of like still very buttoned up. Right. 60s are a little bit more like cool. And this was this is definitely a transition 60s, of, although Down With Love yeah. really references that more than this. But yeah, because Down With Love takes place in 63, they say. That's 63, really? Yeah. Okay. I, I just, the one of the things I noted was how many uh, the book in the book parts, profiles and courage was all around. I thought that was. Oh, right. I know, which would be a different year. I think that's like a goof. That's your, that's your IMDb goofs. Hey, is, I, I don't uh, know how long it was on the bestseller list. So I'm not going to. Yeah. Um, but I, we, I watched some special features and at, in the special features, I believe they said it was supposed okay. to be okay. took place in 1963. But it doesn't, that's not, we're still on Because yeah. it could kind of be early 60s yeah Plus it's made it, it, this movie the um down with love was made in the future where they knew what was going to happen in the 60s so they could comment on it right, yeah. right. <laughs> yeah. well what do you think uh the reputation because i mean I, I feel like anyone who wants to watch these has to want to watch them just for like um rock hudson doors day chemistry or people have to want to watch them because like there's not a lot of people pushing them these movies right now, I would say. Yeah, I mean, I think there's probably, I think there's probably a um, attitude nowadays that it's like, oh, they're old fashioned, and like you know, there's not something to say about you know whatever relationships today. But you know, I think, well, yeah, they are old fashioned, and yeah, the way people talk about relationships in that era is not the same as today but i still think it's enjoyable and like i mean like i said the screenplay is good there's like jokes and you know it's funny <laughs> like definitely moments where you laugh and like sort of like these one-liners and sort of the sly asides where they are making those kind of double entendres or whatever that i think still are you know they still land uh now it's also like really fun to look at because these movies had a really colorful, very fun you know, I, that, <laughs> that 50s, 60s design. Well, especially the apartment at the end when she redesigns the apartment at the end. Oh, oh my. Yeah, when she redesigns his apartment and it's like, you know, the bachelor lair mm-hmm. from hell with like uh, animal heads and like beads in a rotating bed or whatever <laughs> i feel like i feel like that design was a good uh not, that wasn't five years uh behind its time it was like a yeah. good six years ahead of its time yeah um 
So, I mean, I think you can still, I think you can still enjoy it. And I think it's still clever. Like they do the split screen things when they're talking on the phone. And that was kind of a, at the time, it was kind of a clever way to kind of make it look like they're laying in bed next to each other when actually they're laying in their own bed and it's just a split screen down the middle. And so you can kind of make it seem like they're being more intimate than uh, they are. And I think it's still clever yeah. to watch that and see how they choreograph that. Well, in particular, I was, I was paying attention um, whenever you see a split screen like that, especially on film, uh, they have to optically print. And so you see one side or both sides of the quality of the film will suddenly get dirty and the quality of the film will go down. Mm -hmm. And even despite that, mm -hmm. um, there's a trick I know Woody Allen did on Annie Hall where when they did split screen, they just put a line in the set they it was a set they they put the split screen in the set itself oh, and the bathtub oh, scene in here was that way the bathtub scene in hills you oh. could tell that like they were coordinating their feet on it to the split screen that wasn't even though they did have to do an optical thing in there like it it was definitely mm -hmm. said where what is um in romantic comedies do you remember know any romantic comedies that have used uh voiceover like this because i was trying to think of the state of where voiceover would be at and you, you think it's like predominantly in film noirs um to that line i was thinking obviously one of the funniest ones is uh or notable ones would be sunset boulevard uh, transitions over from into another mm -hmm. genre and but so much of the commentary the internal monologue of these characters especially in a romantic comedy context seem like i cannot think of another movie that did it before this but that doesn't I, I just not i'm blanking on if there was one mm. you mean like the characters themselves like thinking and you hear their inner that monologue also that in are... a romantic context too i don't know um off the top of my head i can't think of uh something you know a particular yeah. example but um yeah the thing that these kind of remind me of as like sort of a you know cinematic successor is um the Astaire and Rogers musical okay. comedies from the 30s and 40s, where it's a lot of the same deal where like, obviously it's sort of chased. You don't, they don't have like love scenes in those movies, but then when they dance, of course, that's where the, the intimacy comes in when Astaire and Rogers dance. But it's a lot of like, oh, the mistaken identity plot of, you know, he's pretending to be someone or she, you know, accidentally thinks that he's one guy and then there's all the little you know um the farce of you know kind of the mistaken identity or trying to make her believe that you're somebody else and then at the end you know coming together and um yeah the, i mean that it's sort of just this classic you know kind of uh, formula a lot almost. of our conversations about romantic comedies have been um first off you and i always have had this like mutual love of certain ones from 30s and the 40s but i know i come at it from more pre billy wilder so you do the lineage of like lubitsch to billy wilder or preston sturges to billy wilder so you have more sure. of a screwball thing maybe mm -hmm. some of the howard hawks ones coming into it too but it's people fall i i just one of the things i know i love about it is people falling in love at any given time especially when there's a tension about are they going to as you're to use your phrase come together or not um like th it's endlessly rewatchable it's, it's like young people falling in love is always or just charming people falling in love is always a great thing to watch yeah yeah 
And you're just like, kiss, kiss, kiss. Well, even if it's not even kiss, 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 it's just more like be funny and banter with each other in this like battle of yes, the sexes before I know, the, you kiss. The banter. And... Yeah. Yeah. Like the Lubitsch and the Billy Wilder ones definitely are more bantery. Sure. And, and then like, and like, uh, yeah, the screwball comedies definitely are more about like gags. And then I think like uh, Pillow Talk, it's definitely not as like gag comedy heavy or like crazy like people running in and out of doors kind of thing maybe I, I don't know you don't I, think so? I, I, I don't, I don't know, know if it's the joke quotient in pillow talk or just the like setup of some of these jokes like it is clever it is clever but it's sometimes you could see yeah. it a mile coming coming though but yeah i just don't think that i don't i mean i think i'm saying that they're, they're different, different. They're definitely the different. I, i'm, I'm Different. That's why I feel like kind of the Esther Rogers are a little more because similar in a style, just because there's definitely like little repartee and like joke, you know, witty jokes, but it's just a little more, there's a little more um, elegance than you would say than like a. Yeah, I think, I think uh, there's the, the thing about there. In this romantic comedy is not really consummated until the very even even though maybe there's some like make out hints in, in middle of the movie there's it's not really consummated until the very end of the movie and whereas in a um any musical romantic comedy every time there's a musical moment like it feels like that for a moment is a consummation mm, well, maybe maybe i guess it depends <laughs> it depends on the the song if we want to use this to get into it now or we should go straight to down with love but i i do want to i wanted to use this episode also to talk about the state of romantic comedy in general right now much less the history of it too but maybe we should transition down with love to get into that where did you yeah. where did you, okay. you first see well, it down with love you know i think i actually saw it in the theater i think i think i saw it in like a dollar theater oh don't <laughs> <sighs> I feel like that might be it. I don't remember because it came out in 2003. Right. I feel like I didn't see it then. And I feel like I saw it a little bit later. But um, I definitely saw it around the time it came out. I remember the trailer vividly because, I mean, projectionist, you would remember every trailer you saw. You memorized every trailer. Um, sure. the, the other thing was a few of my friends. I had a pretty open man crush on Ian McGregor at this time. I had some friends that also had... <laughs> Moulin Rouge was a big movie for this at this time. I am a, a Star Wars prequels mm -hmm. apologist, and like this is his oh, sure. this is yeah. his big movie in between this, and so yeah. I was at least excited to see it. Um, like I said, I teched it at night. Mm -hmm. I can't remember if I was by myself when I watched it. It would have been like twelve or one in the morning watching it. Um, and like <laughs> I said, I did not have the Rock Hudson Doris Day context on any of it. Yeah, it was. My big excitement coming into this was a few things was mainly Peyton Reed. And like, I'm not a, I, I'm not a big fan of bring it on. I don't know if you are. I am a fan. I mean, I am exactly the right age to have <laughs> bring it on came out in 2000 and that was the year I graduated high school. So it came out actually after I graduated, but you know, I'm like the same okay, age okay. as the people in the movie. And it was something that they showed up at my college like you know movie night you know free movie <laughs> it was like i remember that was one of the first ones that they showed 
Um, I remember being clever. I just, I was, I was, I was still actually too close to high school where cheerleaders were a vacuous clique that hated me. So I think maybe that was a problem. Yeah. Well, you know, I think at first I resisted because of some unreasonable resistance to Kirsten Dunst, oh, I love me. Um, which I'm I now love Kirsten over. Dunst. Yeah. I'm now over that. I'm now, I'm now, you know, a fan, but at the time for whatever reason I had an aversion and I was like, well, I don't want to see that. And I'm like, oh, I'm not going to like this. And, but but I do like it. <laughs> well, I'm going to admit something I've never, I don't know if I've ever admitted anyone before, and I'm, I hope this isn't recorded so it goes out to anywhere. Oh. Uh, I wrote Kirsten Dunst a love letter when I was 13. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> she did not go out with me after writing what? it, though, so it still hurts. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, Peyton Reed's also bona fides for me. Uh, there, there was something also very clever about bringing it on, too. There was something smart about it going into and. Um, mm-hmm. was he, he had worked on Mr. Show. He had worked on Mr. Show with Bob and David. So yeah. that was a big, I, I got it. Mm-hmm. I had the vague vibe that he was a part of the Largo scene. Um, his background, did have you looked into his background before this even? I just was looking at his filmography mostly. And, you know, I saw a lot of, TV. he did those while the world of Disney, which, okay. Ostensibly the reason we're other reason we're doing this, even though it's too late for Valentine's day um, mm-hmm. is because I don't know later tonight, I'm going to see uh, Ant-Man quantum mania, his new movie. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. He, um, his first, the craziest thing on his filmography is his very first directing gigs. Did you see this back to the future episodes? Oh yeah. The, like a TV series. Of- yeah. Oh, animated. Yeah, okay. It was a Saturday morning cartoon. I remember I was starting to get out of the point of being into Saturday morning cartoons. So, like, I was barely, I, I love Back to the Future and I was barely into it. Yeah. Um, and Bob Gale also directed, like, they got anim- like non animators, it looked like, to, to direct these episodes. <laughs> yeah, well, it says director live action sequences. Oh, okay. Because Christopher Maybe Lloyd was, was uh, doing... did, did these interstitials to him. Right. He would, yeah. But yeah, a lot of TV, like, weird comedy stuff like weird al and he did a computer war t- uh, red tennis shoes remake okay <laughs> but it was interesting because when you were saying like yeah with ant-man coming out look at a peyton reed movie and i looked at his filmography and i was like wow he really hasn't directed very many movies and, and like he, he's interested in a little in romantic comedies too at least right after this but he has done a wide variety of stuff too right well, it, well, as far as movies, it's Bring It On, Down With Love, then The yeah. Breakup, and Yes Man, two kind of big, big yeah. studio comedies. The, the, have you seen, do you remember The Breakup? Do you remember much about it? So I've never seen The Breakup, and I did not go back and watch The Breakup, I, but I remember that it was a very big deal. The, bro- the Breakup the is... is <laughs> it was a big well, Okay, hit. it's a hit. But the breakup is like def- I have I haven't watched it since it came out, but it is worth revisiting just because it has a very, very interesting ending, and it's not what you're expecting for. Mm. So then it's like Ant Man is the next one after that. Yeah, then the next movie he makes is just three Ant Man movies, and in between he directs some TV. Okay. In between, like Yes Man and Ant Man. Okay. Inversely, <laughs> he took over Ant Man for when Edgar Wright left the movie too. Yeah. Right. Um, so I did rewatch Ant Man and I did watch Yes Man. Okay. And um, which I hadn't seen be- ever before. I had seen Ant Man. So almost all these movies we haven't seen since they came out. We we liked them. We finally remembered them, but they were disposable. I thought like I never watched Yes Man because I wasn't interested. I thought like, well, that's 
dumb. Like one of those Jim Carrey movies where he can't do something or whatever, you know. (laughs) But um, I actually thought it was okay. I guess just kind of watching these, kind of my take on Peyton Reed is like, I didn't notice, like, he didn't have, like, a real style or anything, you know, really um, that stood out that you would think, like, oh, well, this is a Peyton Reed movie. And it just kind of seems like he's a nice man who um, people enjoy working with. And he can get the job done. I mean, he's, like, a competent director. I'm surprised because I feel like he's more of a classical director who's really not trying to impose himself on stuff. And like the one thing that I always felt like mm-hmm. he just elevated everything he worked on, at least uh, up until, I mean, I love, I like the Ant-Man movies, but he always, like, I always, I sought out Peyton Reed movies. The other, the other thing about Down With Love that I wanted, I wanted to talk about, especially um, the earlier, uh, earliest scenes, all the New York stuff, the way they shot New York, Peyton Reed at this time, was uh, for i don't know how long was up for directing uh the 20th century fox fantastic four movie before it turned in for it yeah. turned tim story mm-hmm. eventually did the really terrible ones and um his pitch apparently for for a fantastic four reader fan like the best the peak time of fantastic four was the 60s and so his pitch was to mm-hmm. base it in the 60s in new york in 1963 well mm-hmm. i guess yeah 63 would have probably mm-hmm. been and I'm theorizing I've never read a script mm-hmm. or anything like that, but that is always what I'd heard mm-hmm. that he wanted to base it. So all this stuff yeah. of like going outside the UN building, all this stuff, it just feels like a lot of what, he, if, if, if that was true, a lot of stuff for Fantastic Four, he translated over to Down With Love. <laughs> yeah. You know, watching the, um, I watched the special features that were on the DVD of Down With Love and it's funny seeing like this DVD from 20 years ago that has all these featurettes and things that like you're lucky if you get anything on a DVD nowadays. But anyways, <laughs> I just seeing like the little ones with the costume designer and the production designer and talking about all these aspects and how much work they did. And it just seemed like people. The, the rear projection stuff, whenever they had the, um, yeah. the, the movies they got them from was funny. Yeah, it was just, it just seemed like of people who really loved what they were doing, were really interested in this, you know, design of the time period and were just like really happy to be making this movie. And so I feel like they probably, a lot of the people that worked on this movie, they enjoyed the work that they could put into it, the craft. And uh, I don't know if they thought it could ever be financially successful. (laughs) But somebody gave them money to make it. That's what bummed me out watching the behind the scenes was it was just like, <laughs> oh, this should have been a hit. This because there's so much care and love put yeah. into this, and, and and we haven't even talked about the script being as clever as it is because that's been really at the end of the day that's the reason I wanted to do this episode is like hmm. it's a really clever script. Yeah, and those to the uh, two screenwriters Eve Allert and Dennis Drake. It seems like they really didn't do very much afterwards either that they, they saw they're credited for legally blonde too but you know they don't <laughs> okay. but i mean i just think it's a shame that they didn't get it they seems like they haven't had anything produced um since then since this is a fun script so all right the thing i mentioned at the beginning of the episode my scene the scene that like has oh I, every time i've talked about this movie to anyone i, I thought it was just the killer scene and it's not it's not exactly as I remember it when I rewatch it, but I always remember thinking this is the greatest shot reverse shot in film history. 
and really like when you when i rewatch it it's because it, there's a little bit of a shot ver, shot reverse shot rhythm to it but not really it's really what happens is there's a big reveal about uh 70 minutes in and um mm-hmm. it's going back and forth between uh renee zellweger and Hugh mcgregor and renee zellweger then just has this long long monologue to explain a big turn in the movie and the shot goes on and mm-hmm. on forever as she expertly gets out everything and just like it's a very implausible plot change that she <laughs> acts so just like such a champ getting through this and just and having to every turn every bizarre little thing she just just at the top of her game but the moment you realize it's where it feels like a shot reverse shot is when it finally cuts back to Ewan McGregor reacting to it is <laughs> my job when it's in the theater I, I knew this movie was going to be good I thought this movie or better than what we were seeing I, I had an idea that there was higher quality to it but just the how low my jaw dropped when that moment hat came I just when I was speaking earlier about there's these great moments in movies that no one and mediocre movies that no one will know about. This is a good movie with an elevated moment like that. And you try to explain it to somebody, you have to watch the entire movie to to get why why that moment is right, right, <sighs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, that's great. <laughs> that, was that not the moment for you either? What do you, I mean? The moment of what that you liked the movie? One of the most memorable most memorable moments of no, this movie for me. The most memorable moment because it's something again that i think about a lot is when um ewan mcgregor which we haven't given a plot summary yet but ewan mcgregor pretends to be another character he does his he's pretending to be major zip martin instead of an an astronaut an astronaut a southern astronaut instead of his actual character who is named catcher block hilarious name and he is uh, trying to uh, trick Renee Zellweger that he's Zip Martin, and they go out to din- uh, lunch. And then he tells the waiter or the maitre d, he's like, "By the way, it's Major Zip Martin now. Tell all the maitre d's, doormen, theater ushers, taxi drivers, like you know, just <laughs> spread the word, so that <laughs> so that um, now everyone in town will just call address me by Major Zip Martin." <laughs> And that was just so hilarious <laughs> to me. There, there. I feel like this movie's filled with a lot of moments like that. Should I do the plot synopsis? I am terrible at them. I mean, I can, I can do it if you don't. If you think you're going to be terrible forgot, at it. What is Renee Zellweger's character's uh, f- first name? It's um, Her name is Barbara Novak. Barbara Novak, Novak is a writer from New, uh, New, New England? New Hampshire? Or Maine. She's from Maine. She says she's from Vermont. Oh, yeah. She's, uh, and she's just come to New York because she's written a book called Down With Love that um, goes on about why women don't need men particularly they can find ways around them including with sex replace it with chocolate and she comes to new york under the tutelage of sarah paulson as her editor who they then have to go to a board of all men who are not thinking much of the book and so to try to to try to sell the book um 
David Hyde Pierce is a publisher who I, I don't sure is it like an Esquire magazine? I'm not sure what. Yeah, he's the publisher of No Magazine, K N O W. Yeah, which is like an Esquire. His main writer type. is named Catcher Block. Who? What is? Who, who do you? Uh, ladies' man, man's man, man about town. Who Catcher do you? Who do you think Block. he's supposed to be representing? Because I kept all the writers I was thinking of would not. I mean, Catcher. I mean, I go to Salinger, but like, no, no. Oh. Because like Salander wasn't a magazine writer ever, and years later, um, I kept trying, thinking Truman Capote, but Truman Capote clearly wasn't him. I'm just trying who who was a big Norman Mailer. I don't know. I don't know if there's like a real world analog for his character. I think it's just more of like magazine writer is kind of a somewhat glamorous New York. He dog. he has a scoop where he found out that. Um, NASA was bringing in a bunch of Nazis to Florida to help out with the rocket program. <laughs> yeah, that's his latest expose. Yeah. And so then David Hyde Pierce wants uh, wants him to do the story on Barbara Novak because he's trying to um, he's trying to uh, date um, Sarah Paulson's character. And then Hugh yes. McGregor in the first of the movie's long, great split screen sequences stands uh, Barbara Novak moment after moment after moment. And then mm -hmm. Barbara Novak uh, then decides that, uh, oh, now I should, I should try to really make this a bestseller. And right. well, uh, they thought, they thought that, th that getting an interview with Catcher Block would really publicize the book. But um, since he keeps standing her up for the interview, they decide what if only we could get your book on the Ed Sullivan show? And then someone I forget who who I forgot who who disappears, and then they get Judy Garland singing "Down with Love," which is and then they the song "Down with Love," yeah. And then they have Ed Sullivan say it's a tie-in with the book. Which, yes, which well, I think it's hilarious because Sarah Paulson's like, "Yeah, how do you get a book on the Ed Sullivan show?" Because like it's a book. <laughs> what are you going to well, do? And also to say nothing. To, uh, Renee Zellweger and the Judy Garland connection too. Renee Zellweger's Oscar. Yes, that's yeah. interesting. Yes. Uh, and then so the the book then shoots up and becomes a big bestseller, and she does more TV shows, and she slides Catcher Block on another uh, quiz game show, which then inspires Catcher Block to want to expose her for who she really is, mm -hmm. and that's when the Zip Martin stuff happens, and they start right. Maybe or maybe not falling in love. Yeah, well, they start dating. She thinks he's this nice astronaut named Zip Martin. And then eventually his identity is revealed. But then Barbara Novak reveals that maybe she knew more than how, we thought. How, how much do you want to say? Like, I'm terrible about <laughs> synopses. I'm terrible about spoilers. This is just the moment in the movie where she reveals who she really is. Her character's real name is Nancy Brown. Yeah, well, she goes on an extended monologue, like you say, where she reveals that her name is Nancy Brown and she used to be Catcher Block's secretary, but he goes through them so fast and doesn't pay attention that he would never have noticed her. And she realized that she's in love with Catcher Block, but the only way to get him would be to write a best-selling book and convince him and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And she goes on and basically recites. Right. The section where <laughs> describes the writing a best-selling book is so like, like it's just like one sentence after this long monologue. She's like, oh yeah, write a best-selling book. is so casual. Right. And uh, then she kind of then details basically all the points, all the points of the plot that we've just seen. And you realize that she had sort of orchestrated all of this. This was part of her plan 
down, you know, whatever just happened five minutes before. <laughs> and um, you, as much as I love Renee Zellweger's performance there, the reaction shot is a chef's kiss. <laughs> but yeah, and, you know, Renee Zellweger, uh, Ewan McGregor are both great. Sarah Paulson is great as the editor. David Hyde Pierce is great as Ewan McGregor's editor playing the Tony Randall part. If you had to like make a more modern uh, analog of Tony Randall, I mean, David Hyde Pierce is immediately yeah, <laughs> comes to mind and, you know, he's great. Tony Randall also appears as the head of the book publishing yeah. company. Yeah. Yeah. Cameo there, but honestly, perfect comic timing. I thought <laughs> like, you know, he's like 80 years old at that point or something and, you know, had not lost. Had not lost its timing there. The um, <laughs> you mentioned the DVD. One of the very frustrating things is this movie opens with um, a re- like an old school 20th Century Fox logo, and then it has the old 20th Century Fox mm-hmm. Cinema Scope thing that piece in. And mm-hmm. so the DVD I got. I always talk about how our local libraries are amazing, but for some reason around 2003 they bought a ton of full screen DVDs. Oh, so yeah. I, I started it and it was full screen. I was like, fuck this shit. And so I went ahead and rented it on Amazon. <laughs> Rented it on Amazon, also pan and scan. It's a 16 by nine oh, pan and scan. No. And was ridiculous is there's clearly some scenes that like the process shot or any of the split screen shots where it needs to be two, three, five. So the film with the, the, the movie would then be go back to two, three, five, just for those scenes. Oh my gosh. So at least it, at least it would do it that, but it was just, so unnecessary and so oh. ridiculous. Why? Why do you cut, why do you cut a composition why? Why? like that? It's <laughs> such butchery. Yeah, the split screen. I mean, split screen. yeah, that's one of the main. That's one of the main kind of uh, you know bits of homage that they're doing to Pillow Talk, and it's it's weird. Also, know. it then takes Pillow Talk well a few decades past its. Yeah, right, right. It, I mean, it takes the idea of a split screen where. Um, Renee Zellweger and Ewan McGregor are talking on the phone. And again, it's showing them on either half of the screen, creating the intimacy that they're actually near each other when they're on the phone. But then it has them doing sort of these like Austin Powers like uh, poses where, you know, oh, it looks like, you know, they're touching each other in certain ways, sexual positions and like their feet are coming together at the end, like they're in bed together. This movie's shot by Jordan Cronenwith too, who's a David Fincher cinematographer. Like it's it's and it's it's weird because one of the things like that I can't tell if it's two thousand three or it's just um, on purpose. And I think a lot of it's on purpose is they try to do a rear projection effect on a lot of this stuff to get the artifice going, and some of it just mm-hmm. looks like bad green screen comps. Um, but on purpose and because some of them like the process shots look cool like yeah. in a bad way in a good bad way yeah i mean they like intentionally i mean they shot everything on the universal backlot and like with the car shots which would usually be rear projection right yeah. shane you're the sure. you're more of a filmmaking expert but like in Back the day. doris day movie it was a rear projection so that means that they would be sit physically sitting in the car and then something was projected behind them while they're doing right. the scene right like in the old days, but in this one, that wasn't working. So I guess they had to do yeah. green screen with, but they did use old footage from fifties movies as 
the streetscape. They mentioned on Doris Day one, but they also mentioned uh, My Man Gottfried as one of the ones. Yeah, which in the 50s, there was a color okay. remake of My Man uh, Gottfried. So I have to assume that's yeah, what it was yeah. instead of the right. black and white, because <laughs> yeah. that would have been odd. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, there was a, a okay. 50s remake. So that must be. And I think the other one they said was That Touch of Me, that sounds right. which makes sense. Um, because the, a lot of that is in the car. <laughs> There's a funny point where they have the same setup and apparently behind both Sarah Paulson and David Hyde Pierce, who are both sitting in the right side of the uh, uh, the passenger side of the back seat, they use the exact same footage. Yeah, they just reuse it. And, you know, most people wouldn't notice, but I think I think they're kind of... If you do notice, it's a benefit, yeah, you know, it's kind true. of. Well, yeah, and just, I mean... Well, the apartment, in the background of the apartment, the artifice of this, like... One of the interesting yeah. things about this also is there, there's a definite level of like deliberate artifice. And like I said earlier, being a um, Hugh McGregor fanboy at this point, him coming off of both the Star Wars movies, which were very trying to look kind of, but Moulin Rouge, which really deliberately put a very modern artifice version into its face, that very hyperactive, mm -hmm. trying horror mm -hmm. artifice. It was interested to like do this artifice, but also in a classical style too, in a very specific time period. He was trying to recreate, yeah, but also, but like recreate the time period from a movie, right. like the the movie version of that. So like, um, when they, you know, look out of Barbara Novak's a ridiculously huge apartment that you know nobody ever would have but like in a movie that's yeah. what it would look like and they look at the view of new york and it's this impossible view where like the chrysler building and you know empire state building are all yeah, in the yeah, same yeah. like you know <laughs> the same mm -hmm. window or like she gets out of grand central station and walks across the street to the un building when they're not actually across the street but it's like one of those things where you know it's just having someone go to all the landmarks you know you got to get the landmarks in so you know that you're in new york yeah, city the only, the only time they they all were properly paced is the that opening um map painting when the helicopter over lower manhattan but otherwise yeah i did one else I, I know you're not a music person but i did want to talk about the score or shame in. Oh, yeah. And again, another person who clearly just loved the opportunity to be able to do this score. And, um, and, you know, he had done, he's, he had done other movies that had sort of what I would call kind of nostalgic type scores, like, I think, like Sleepless in Seattle, or these other like romantic comedy movies that have, then you have like a Harry Connick Jr. song, you know, and it's supposed to be kind of you know, hearkening back to an older time with the music. I don't know if I just started paying attention to him after he started doing more stage musicals. Like, didn't he do the Hairspray, John Travolta one was one of his credits. But then, yes. but he also did the South Park. Team movie. America and South Park are the things I know him for most. But I mean, in particular in this In Down With Love, one of the things that's cool about his music is how it's so... Um, Every single motion on screen, there's a gag or a little uh, um, twist. Oh, yes. He adds a little there's, musical, you know. There's a little teaser button. to every eye. Yeah, a little button to every eyebrow twitch in the movie. Every expression that changes abruptly, <laughs> like it just sells with a button every time. Yeah, which, you know, maybe that could be um, 
annoying or it could be uh you know <laughs> or it could be fun i think i think it adds i think it adds to it i think i think it was fun i think you're i, I didn't know if you're being diplomatic there or not but i i thought it was fun <laughs> well you know i did go back and read reviews from the time because it was interesting for me to see like what the reaction was at the time and i think some people what were they saying well it was it had a very mixed reaction there were some people who really enjoyed it kind of you know for all the reasons we're saying you know like oh it's cute it's fun like the leads are good and other people just saying like like what is this supposed to be it doesn't find the right tone and like oh there were too many jokes or they're like too many jokes know, yeah elbowing you in the ribs every 90 seconds like you know the music is you know whatever putting a pin on everything it's like i don't need you to tell me when to laugh or something you know <laughs> needed naturalism and drama from this and what's in, what was interesting too was a lot of the reviews almost everyone cuz you know these are being written in 2003 brought up far from heaven which had come out in 2002 and was oh, that's right. like a serious version of someone trying to sort of recreate the style of a 50s film. In that case, it was Douglas Sirk melodrama. Douglas Sirk. Yeah. Why can't this be more Douglas Sirk? Oh, my gosh. Wow. Okay. And, you know, the Todd Haynes movie. Um, and, you know, that was very serious. And people were taking that, um, you know, very seriously and uh, as an exercise. And but it was funny that like almost every review of Down with Love brought up Far from Heaven because like I, that movie would not have entered my mind, you know, except when you go back, you know, to the time period that was coming, that had come out recently. <laughs> it's so weird, Far from Heaven. No one, I, I don't feel like anyone talked. I mean, people, Todd Haynes still has his fans, and rightfully so. Uh, maybe they talk safe and uh, and stuff he's made in the last few years, but I don't feel like people mention Far from Heaven anymore. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's certain, it has a certain, uh, you know, fans that I'm not saying it's you know, disliked will, or anything. I'm just saying it's not one right. that like people have like tried champion a, a ton in the last few years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which yeah. maybe there's something about, um, even a good pastiche with a lot of cleverness and love still has to build to be something different. I don't know. I, cause this, this mm-hmm. down with love is so fun and clever though yeah i think you know it's just it's camp and it's embracing the sort of camp aspects of this time period when the moot and again the movies of the time period it's not trying to be a realistic recreation of you know that time but it's like like the outfits are a great example where every scene they have a different outfit every scene and like renee is has a dress, a coat, a hat, gloves, shoes that all match. And, you know, they have these big, it's these fashion show moments where they sort of walk in a room and you see the whole thing. And it's like, yeah, just kind of, you know, kind of an appreciation for like this, you know, sort of outlandish fashion and like kind of loving that. But like Edith Head Overdrive or something. (laughs) Yes. But you know, and when you watch like Pillow Talk or Lever, Lever Come Back, when I was watching it, I was dying because every scene Doris Day had some insane hat that were just like these huge hats that, you know, of course, matched. Like one was like a, a triangular basket upside down on her head with like different colored tassels on it. And it was just like, 
no real person would have ever worn that, right? Like, I can't believe that. I, I, I didn't want you to talk about the costume in here, but I feel like Renee Zellweger's, um, what, what is she wearing at the ver- in her very last see- scene sequence? That seemed like an homage to that. Um, you know, what? When, she, when you, again, not trying to spoil too much, but at the end of the movie, whenever she's head of the she's in the office mm, oh she's wearing like a turban are you talking about that yeah one? I, I didn't know how to describe it well like yeah at the end where after she has her big reveal to you and mcgregor then she and sarah paulson start their own company uh-huh. right or no that's that is that that's before that she and sarah paulson start their own company and then you and mcgregor comes to apply for a job it's after the reveal it's after the reveal that i was talking about earlier Oh right, right. Okay, yeah. And she and she's wearing like a turban, and she takes it off. Are you talking about that? We don't have to say what that is. I'm just saying like, <laughs> that that's like over overdone. That head, yes. headwear seemed like that. That was an homage to that. Yes. Well, and in her very first scene, she comes out and she's wearing this pink dress with this huge white collar and this giant white, almost like sailor. Right. Hat. Some of the collars in this were amazing. <laughs> but you know, and all the clothes. Daniel Orlandi was a costume designer. Give him credit. All the clothes were designed and made specifically for the actors. They're, they weren't using like old, they weren't using vintage. They weren't using like old designs or copying them. It was all designed for the actors. Um, because of course they would be new. The clothes would have been new at the time if they were really yeah. in the 60s. But yeah, the costumes are wonderful. You know, all the four main characters, they all have really great looks that just pop out and are just so um fun to look at but like uh what i was saying you know it's like embracing a lot of the camp elements but the movie is also slightly poking fun at you know with the split screen and making it more you know sexually explicit um poses it's poking fun at those old movies it's funny you use the word camp i always felt like i had a problem when people use the word camp or not people using it, but it was like if someone applied it to something, it was something I wouldn't like just because it always seemed deliberately like, I don't know. It was always, it was always this line between like deliberately bad and I don't know, like mm-hmm. in parody and like parody works for me, but camp, like I never, I, mm-hmm. cause it always, it, it always felt like it smacked a little too much of, and this isn't that, that's what I'm saying. Like I, I wouldn't use this camp to describe it, but mm-hmm. maybe cause I don't understand camp, but like camp always seemed to me to jump towards the, so got so bad. It's good appreciation mm-hmm. of some movies. It can be. I think, I think it's, I think there's a wide interpretation. Okay. But yeah. Um, but I don't know. Am I going to have to look up Susan Sontag's uh, camp essay? (laughs) But I think, I think in this case, I'm using it to mean sort of over-exaggerated sort of, you know, um, the sort of bigger than life heightening of elements and embracing of kind of those, um, over the top things but not in a way that i think is bad but in a way that you know they're actually you know you you enjoy it and yeah that's i think that's the other reason i'm objecting because i just sometimes i automatically went to bad and i don't mm-hmm. um but you know i think it also just works as a story uh, you know a romance i think that it's a silly story and i think that the you know the basic plot of the romantic um you know storyline just works and is fun to watch whether you are noticing the pastiche of the 50s and 60s or you're getting those nods or not 
I think it just ends up working. Well, on that note, with charm and people falling in love in different time periods, maybe now's a good time to talk about where do you think the state of romantic comedies is right now? Because to me, it feels like Netflix is the only one making them. And Netflix is kind of, I don't know who Netflix is making them for sometimes beyond younger kids who I can't tell if they're watching them or not. Yeah, it's really, um, I mean, it's definitely uh, not, a genre that I think is getting a lot of backing in like, you know, major releases. Um, When I'm looking, thinking about what are the um, notable, like, you know, even with notable stars like Jennifer Lopez or Reese Witherspoon, Julia Roberts, these people who we, you know, were making really, you know, successful romantic comedies, whether you actually liked those movies or not, quality varies, but like you say, they're going to streaming mostly you know, or they're doing like that dual release, but it's like most people are probably going to watch it on Netflix or Peacock or like I watched the Jennifer Lopez, uh, Owen Wilson one earlier this year or last year. Yeah, I think it was last year. Uh, And because I'm like, well, I mean, I could like them. Let me watch this. And like, it was fine. Um, but it was just like on Peacock or something. So, you know, like, I don't think a lot of you know, people are watching it. And I think, but, you know, a lot of these movies are hits for like Netflix and some of the ones that are like pitched at like younger audiences. Like I know Netflix had a series of kind of like teen romantic comedies, like to all the boys I've loved before. Oh, and... I, see. I, I have seen that one. I like that one for the most part. Yeah. Or if that's what it's called. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, they're just not getting out there a lot in the theaters. And, and I, you know, I think there's a lot of reasons why, but I think it's yeah. a shame. I mean, the, it, well, the, the trick of it also seems that, you know, there's, there's the fine line between like, I, I, I've always said, I'm, I love romantic comedies, but I've always been one of those people that hates the, what you would call a chick flick thing where just because i think like the problem always mm-hmm. was like the trick on doing a good romantic comedy is like the perfect date movie that makes both you know, just like everyone happy mm-hmm. with like mm-hmm. if, a, if, a, if a date goes to a movie both people are happy and uh it's hard it's becoming an increasingly hard bullseye to do and especially with theatrical going down and it's weird to like like especially with these day and date romantic comedies where it's like the appeal should be to go on a date to a theater right but it's like yeah it's like the spectacle movies are more of what people and, are going to hey, see spectacle movies I i'm glad they bring people to theaters too but yeah you know. i don't know and like this past year there were two romantic comedies featuring um you know two men as the lead you know as the main couple which i i enjoyed both of them i enjoyed bros and fire island i particularly enjoyed bros yeah fire island was pretty good i thought they were both good and um i feel like fire island wasn't really real it was like a hulu movie bros went into theaters but it was didn't famous or kind of frustratingly kind of frustratingly not a lot of box office billy eichner was speaking out about it i think one of the things that was amazing about bros that i liked about it was like it's it's hard for a romance like to be sincere anymore there always has to be some like kind of affectation to it or the artifice like Mm -hmm. the whole marriage plot of will they or won't they get together stuff sometimes like it seems like it's overthought sometimes and when people are trying to develop these two 
Yeah. And sincerity is something that's, um, can, I think it's difficult to pull off right now. Um, or for people to, uh, accept right now. But, uh, you know, that's, I think that's what makes a good, uh, love story, you know, really work. It's like when you two people, you know, saying sincerely that they love each other and you, you know, respond to that. Which is why I'm glad we did this episode celebrating a camp parody. Well, you know, they're... Hey, the end of the movie, I feel like they (laughs) fell in love, right? Happy ending. Yeah. Well, you know, I find this to be true in the Doris Day movies as well as this one. But like when the man, he he takes on this other character or whatever to try to meet her, it's not just because he wants to like, He's not trying to just get revenge or like trick someone. He he sees her, he meets the the woman yeah. and he likes her. And so it's like but if I introduced to her t- as myself, she wouldn't she wouldn't like me, so I've got to pretend. And so it's like there's some genuine, you know, emotion there of like, well, I would like to get to know her, but I can't. So I need a bad Texas accent. So I've already ruined it. So. Yeah, I, I, in this la- this last year, I was like, uh, Ewan McGregor fell in love with Barbara Novak or uh, Renee Zellweger very, very I, 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 much quicker than I remembered in the the Battle of the Sexes mm, plot. Mm-hmm. But okay. well, nice. happy uh, Valentine's Day a week <laughs> late. I uh, hope everyone enjoys <laughs> it, the Star Wars movie that Anto- uh, Quantum Mania is supposed to end up being. I'm seeing it tonight. Oh um, yeah, well, good luck with Quantum Mania. Um, I'll probably just wait for that one to come on screen. Or, or, or you'll wait till <laughs> the next uh, twenty years when we do another Down with Love episode to catch up. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> uh, Lonnie Gonzalez, thank you for being on the podcast. Uh, you want to do your handles, like uh, your writing? The book you can and... find some things that I've written on Book and Film Globe uh, dot com. And cinema then and now dot blogspot dot com still got that blogspot site. <laughs> Thanks, Lonnie. Thank you.